Welcome to the Borderlines Podcast. I'm here with Deanna Okanachoff and Steve Murens, and we're very fortunate to be joined by Jamie Liu, uh, who's here from Ottawa for a conference, uh, I think, on social sciences and, uh, and research. Uh, Jamie Liu is a professor at the University of Ottawa. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Jamie uh, in a number of different uh, capacities over the years, but in particular with respect to, the, to uh, being on the litigation committee for the uh, Canadian Council for Refugees. Uh, Jamie's done um, a wide range of work in uh, the immigration context, uh, starting off, I think, clerking in the federal court, and uh, then is now both a practitioner and uh, a professor in uh, at the University of Ottawa teaching immigration law, uh, publishing one of the, uh, the leading texts on immigration, uh, as well as doing a bunch of uh, other work, both uh, in terms of work with individual clients, but also interventions at the Supreme Court, most recently, uh, I think, in both Vavilov and uh, in uh, Kanthasami, um, Vavilov being a standard review case, as our listeners will be very familiar with. We are just to put anybody's fears to rest. We're not going to be touching on standard review today. So don't <laughs> that uh, and we are, uh, but we are going to talk uh, in a lot more uh, about Kanthasami, which is a case that we haven't had a chance to talk in, in depth about. And uh, Jamie was the intervener for the CIS, for the Canadian Council of Refugees uh, in Kanthasami. Um, so welcome, Jamie. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So um, we were going to start by talking, uh, and in fact, we had planned this podcast to talk about uh, Regulation 117.9D um, before the minister's announcement. Uh, so on Friday, for those of uh, for those who are not aware, the minister uh, attended the uh, Canadian Bar Association's National Immigration Conference and made an important announcement about uh, exceptions to uh, Regulation 117.9D that substantially changed. The, the, the nature of the discussion we're going to have today. Uh, but I think we're going to start out by maybe, uh, Jamie's done, done quite a bit of work uh, studying 117.9D uh, and has written a couple of academic articles uh, on, this, uh, on this particular section of the regulations. And maybe we can start by um, asking Jamie if you can explain to us what is 117.9D and why does it exist? When did it come into existence? Um, yeah, so Regulation 117.9D is part of 117, which is, you know, helping to define uh, who is a member of the family class. And I think it's really important to distinguish family member from family class. You know, as lawyers, we need to be careful about the language that we use. But family members don't necessarily qualify as members of the family class. And it's important to understand that you need to be a member of the family class in order to be sponsored as a family member. Um, if you want to bring family members over through an immigration um, stream to Canada as a family member. So 117 defines who is within that class and 117.9D is a very notorious regulation in that it uh, imposes a lifetime ban on persons who can be considered part of the family class and therefore um, renders them never able you, you if you are caught under this one regulation you can never sponsor the family member so what it does is it defines who is not a family member or fa- a family member in the family class and those are the persons who are not examined by immigration officials or um, you know listed in documentation when 
um, the sponsored person is immigrating to Canada. So this could be in any kind of application like uh, a BOC, like a basis of claim form where you're, you know, filling out an application to or a claim for refugee protection. Um, it could be, you know, um, any kind of um, immigration application that you're filling out for an economic strain for um, and even in documentation that you could have um, anticipated listing your family members like um, temporary foreign worker um, applications or any other. So it, it really covers the gamut of um, any kind of way in which you could uh, alert immigration officials about a family member um, that potentially could be sponsored in the future by that person. Um, and the reason for this regulation was to um, combat this notion of fraud, right? Um, to protect the integrity of the immigration system, to ensure that when persons are immigrating to Canada, that um, their entire family unit is examined and looked at as potentially um, persons who could be immigrating to Canada in the future. Um, and there was, you know, this um, notion or understanding that potentially persons could abuse the immigration system by uh, immigrating to Canada and then claiming that certain persons were their family members and sponsoring them under, um, you know, this, this, this immigration stream. Um, and so the purpose behind 11790 was to prevent fraud, to ensure that people could only sponsor people that were legitimately and genuinely their family members. And one way in doing this was to add a proxy through this regulation that by, you know, disclosing at the outset when you're immigrating or applying for certain kinds of status, who your family members are, this would act as a proxy to determining who were your legitimate or genuine family members. Um, and that at that time, your family members would be examined and if they were found to be um, admissible um, and potentially uh, meeting other requirements of the act, then you yourself would be able to obtain whatever immigration status you were applying for. So that I so let's break it down a bit. So uh, when somebody is applying to immigrate to Canada or become a refugee, they have to somewhere on the forms or the box list their family members. Who are family members? Right. So it could be your spouse, your common law partner, your children. It's really um, persons that are eligible to be sponsored as a family member. Yeah. So. And when you say they have to be examined, what does examined mean? So examined means that you would be, um, you know, they would be listed on the form and they could potentially be called in by immigration officials to be interviewed um, and asked questions with regards to whether or not they would be admissible or not to, to Canada. A criminal record check, a medical exam. That's right. Yeah. And what would happen if one of like what could potentially happen if one of the family members were found inadmissible? So, for example, if I was applying to come in uh, as a skilled worker and my spouse was inadmissible for serious criminality or had some kind of medical condition, how, how would that impact my application? Um, it would impact it greatly in the sense that you, your, your own application could be denied because of your family member, or you might be given the choice to take that family member off your application and you could proceed with your, your um, application, but then it would mean that you could never sponsor that person. Uh, later on as a member of the family class. So it, it has a huge impact. And, you know, there is um, an understanding that some people uh, potentially could um, 
you know, leave off family members knowing that they are either medically or criminally inadmissible as a way to gain entry into Canada. So this is under Section 42 of the Act, right. the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, that a family member either accompanying or non-accompanying in different circumstances can render a person inadmissible. Um, in your understanding, what is what is the rationale for having non-accompanying family members render somebody inadmissible? Well, it's because there's this notion that people, when they come to immigrate to Canada, that they hopefully will be able to bring their family members eventually at a later stage, whether when they obtain permanent residence status or other kinds of status, um, and to prevent people from um, being able to sponsor them in the future, being able, um, you know, I think it, 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 it it's a regulation that tries to prevent people from using the system to bring in people that otherwise would be inadmissible. Um, but if you're like, I guess for me, and, and maybe this, maybe somebody else has an understanding of this, that Section 42 doesn't just render the family member inadmissible. It renders, it renders the whole the, family unit. It renders the whole family unit inadmissible. Yeah. And, and I'm just, um, I, I've always been curious or, or in terms of trying to understand the rationale for Section 42, because this, my my sense of Section 11790 is that it's very tied to Section 42, mm. in the sense that it's about this uh, this notion of inadmissible family members, and that the family members need to be examined, uh, so that if one of them is inadmissible, the whole family unit is rendered inadmissible. And I'm trying to understand, the, or I guess what I'm wondering is in your review of the case law and, and other, what is the rationale that's usually put forward for rendering the whole family unit inadmissible rather than just the inadmissible family member? I think it's this notion that people expect to um, be with their families and that if you are coming to Canada, you expect to be able to bring them at a later stage. And if one person's inadmissible, what's the point in immigrating to Canada if you can't bring your whole family with you? Um, I mean, Section 3 of the IRPA is about, you know, bringing families together and using immigration as a means to um, allow families to immigrate together or to reunify families, even though in some cases it's not about reunifying, it's about migrating together as a family. And if one of those family members can't come to Canada, I guess the IRPA is basically saying, what's the point for this family unit? I, I, feel, like also, I feel like it's that sort of almost paternalistic yes. kind of attitude. Like, well, the objective of the act is to reunite families. So we're going to make sure that if one of you can't come, none of you can. That's right. Well, I think yeah. in, like for the medical inadmissibility or medically inadmissible spouses, they're exempt from uh, the sponsor spouse they're ex exempt from excessive demand. Yeah. So I think it's also to prevent people from the principal applicant immigrating and then just sponsoring that it's spouse totally who's inadmissible and now they're exempt from the excessive demand requirement. I agree with what you're saying, Steve, but the thing that's really um, sort of um, ironic about this is that let's say you're a principal applicant who wants to immigrate. And like Jamie says, you could say to immigration, my spouse is medically inadmissible, so don't examine my spouse. I will waive, I will acknowledge that 11790 will prevent me from ever sponsoring that spouse because I know that if I were to um, 
if I were to become landed, that I will not be able to sponsor that person and I'm acknowledging the consequences. So in a way, 11790 could be useful in the hands of that applicant. But I find that immigration won't let an applicant use it in that facilitative way, even though they could be doing that in such a way that they could that they wouldn't have access to getting landed and then trying to use it as a way out of the excess demand exemption at land once landed. See my sense of my sense of how they use it is that I they will make the exception if you're dealing with an, a, a relatively older dependent child, for example, that's going to age out of the family class anyways. And so over that period of time, my sense of when they're reluctant to apply it is that, and and maybe I'd I'd like to hear you, I'd love to hear your input, but my sense is, is that what one of the concerns is that people will never give up on trying to bring their dependent children or their spouses into Canada. And so even if they sign one of those things that says, I won't sponsor, you know, or I understand that my my spouse is not going to be part of the family class. They're going to make humanitarian applications and economic class applications. And they're just going to do application after application. And we see these people in our offices who've been caught by 117.9 and they'll they'll never give up. Yeah, they will never get because they have. A, if you have a five to five, and neither would I. If my six year old was stuck in Mexico, I wouldn't. I I'd be making applications for the rest of. You know, and, and you know, for for the next ten years, I would just make application after application until I was able to be reunited with my child. That's exactly it. And and you know, in our studies, I should acknowledge that this study that we did was with Prasanna Balasandaram and Jennifer Stone. They're both in Toronto. Um, and you know, the study we did really speaks to that. That um, there is an understanding in immigration that if we do allow this person in, there are other avenues that potentially they could try to bring their family member in. And the understanding that if we you know, if you allow one, it potentially could allow the whole family unit, so deny the entire family unit, right? But you're you're exactly right on point. You know, in our study, we saw people um, applying and applying, and without fail, you know, you needed to do multiple att- attempts to bring your family members if you were caught under 11790 to the point where the majority of the cases that we saw, um, it meant at least a one-year separation, and it went up to 14 years or more. In one, in one case, we were seeing a family that had made multiple attempts and were still waiting at the time of the study, 14 years plus. And this was not just one case. This was a few cases that were waiting, you know, more than a decade. So I would say you're absolutely right that if you have a family member that you want to bring to Canada, you are not going to stop if you have the means to be able to try to make those multiple attempts. Unless, I mean, you see those cases where the 11790 declarations are used because there's a spouse who's or a child who's in somebody else's custody or whatnot. One of the things in your paper that I thought was really interesting was it laid out the big list of different reasons why people might not have had their spouse, common law partner, dependent child examined. Um, And I think that a lot of people might at the outset just think, well, they're lying. And your paper really went into detail. I think it listed dozens of different reasons. Mm -hmm. Can you go into some of the reasons why someone beyond simple misrep might not have declared a spouse, common law partner, or child? Yeah. So I should say that the paper covered two different surveys. The first was you know, a case law survey. We looked at 123 federal court cases. 
Um, and then the second part of the survey was we interviewed a number of lawyers and talked about 44 cases. And the reason why we did that is because, as you know, the case law really can't tell us the full story of what is going on with that family. Um, in the lawyer serve or in the case law survey of the 123 cases, we found that 90% of those cases dealt with reasons why they didn't disclose their family member as non-fraudulent. That was a humongous number for us because for a long time, immigration kept telling us, you know, this is a viable tool to prevent fraud in the immigration system, to prevent abuse. And we wanted to show them that this was, you know, this is an, an overbroad approach to dealing with potential fraud in the system. Um, and so those reasons are actually very heartbreaking. You know, they, they, they start from, you know, um, I had a child out of wedlock and I couldn't tell my family that I was pregnant or um, I was raped and I was too ashamed to talk about the fact that I had a child um, to I received bad advice from a paralegal or a lawyer in my country saying it is faster to immigrate to Canada by not telling immigration officials about my children, about my spouse, um, other tragic reasons. Um, I thought my child was dead. I came from a war zone. I lost my child during the conflict. Um, it was only years later when someone contacted me that I was reunited with my family member. Um, or other ones, I didn't know I had a child. You know, I had a relationship with a woman. She didn't tell me I had this child until I reconnected with her or until I reached out to her years later. Um, and I mean, it, with all of the reasons that we encounter just in the case law itself were extremely heartbreaking. Uh, reasons that, you know, deal with culture, you know, the different elements of why people um, have shame related to having children or having uh, love relationships that may not be um, accepted or approved by their own culture or family to very tragic circumstances in the sense that they didn't know, they didn't know any better, or they were badly informed. The other thing I wanted to point out is that a lot of people didn't know that simply listing a family member on a form would lead to such dire consequences. And I think if people knew it would have been, um, people might have you know, thought about it differently, about the process of filling out a form. I don't know how many of you, you know, fill out registration forms for your kids, for example, you know, and how like that, that's such a benign task to just fill out a form very quickly. And to think that, you know, if something important were to come up that an immigration official would maybe point it out to you or raise it, or someone would advise you of that. And it's not always the case when you're at a visa office or some people are illiterate and having persons helping them with the form. There's so many tragic reasons. Um, and they stem from, you know, lack of understanding and awareness to um, cultural, to, um, you know, conflict situations, to just simply receiving bad advice. Um, in 44 of the cases that we talked to lawyers about, none of the cases dealt with non-fraudulent, or none of the cases dealt with fraudulent reasons. All of them dealt with reasons that were very heartbreaking and where um, persons had a, an explanation as to why they didn't have their family member examined. And despite that, there is really no flexibility in the system, as you know, to to deal with that or, or to um receive this context. Yeah, I guess as you're saying this, it's important to remember that 11790 doesn't care about why. It yeah. just cares that it happened. Um, Deanna, Peter, where do you see 11790 normally arise or what situations have you seen? Well, I mean, I would say one of, one of the areas in which I find it very challenging for my clients, and I recently we had a client where the situation was, because it's 11790 doesn't just require 
declaration of the family member. It requires examination of the family member. And one of the very common situations that we see in our cases are the ex-spouse has the family member in the foreign country and will not facilitate examination of the child. Mm-hmm. And there's a custody dispute or there's, you know, or sometimes even my client has legal custody, mm-hmm. but the spouse has unlawfully taken the child and the choice they have to make is either put my my um, application into abeyance indefinitely because I never know when my spouse is going to cooperate or sign the paper that says I'm never going to sponsor my child. Um, and I, we signed one of those declarations just a few weeks ago um, for one of my clients whose spouse will not facilitate um, because the spouse, the, the spouses, even though we write a letter saying this isn't going to affect, they're not going to take the child. They're like, if I facilitate this, you're going to take my child out of the country. Of course, yeah. And so a lot a lot of spouses and ex-spouses at the best of times don't communicate well and don't trust each other. Right. And so when there's a custody dispute, the idea that you're going to let somebody examine your child mm-hmm. to potentially take my child out of the country, I can see the reluctance from the ex-spouse. Yeah, right. And it's a very not normal, uh, like you can understand how these situations arise, but it's it's devastating for my clients when they're, they, they, sign, they finally resign themselves to signing that paper uh, saying, I'm never going to sponsor my child. Yeah, there is one of the cases in our case law survey that was very tragic where um, one person had decided not to include his children. He signed the paper um, and then he re- he reconciled with his wife. So they never ended up divorcing. And he thought, you know, well, we've ended our relationship. I'm not I've, I've relinquished custody to my wife. And then they ended up reconciling and he couldn't sponsor any of them, mm-hmm. you know, and this was you know, you know, life happens, challenges happen, people go through ups and downs. And the regulation is really not equipped to deal with the fact that people's lives are always in flux and that circumstances change, right? And Deanna, what have you seen? Um, I've seen the very same type of situation Peter has spoken of, but um, even in this situation where like the child has literally been abducted um, and so, um, and the mother, and I often am representing women who came as caregivers. So they've been away for close to a decade and the letters that you have to remember, the letters they're receiving from immigration is you produce this child or you will be denied. And that's the kind of ultimatum that they're being faced with. And so they end up having to, in the face of a child who's being abducted, say, well, then I give up this child. This is what they are put to. And then what they get is a child appearing and contacting them by social media and saying, are you my mother? I have faced 10 years of rape and, um, you know, torture. Can you please bring me? I'm in danger. And the mother is now having to battle 11790 exclusion. Like, these are the traumas that they're dealing with. Like, they're horrible. And then there's a whole, like, we're talking mostly about kids. When you get into the common law partner stuff, That's what I was it gets really sort of, and a lot of the time it's like couples that, we're living, let's say, in... And you'd also just define common law partners. So couples where they have been living together on a contract basis for a year. 
So again, like this gets real murky because like how many times have you been living with somebody like, let's say, who was a roommate and then it became romantic? And at what point did you start calling that person your spouse? Like these things don't happen tidily. And then imagine if you're not just doing this, but you're same sex and living in Saudi, you know, like um, this is not clean, you know, and for immigration to say to you, well, you were um, you were a common law couple at that point. Like these are not tidy, like you would have been perhaps living in hiding, you know. So this disclosure that you should have made at that time, um, you were you, you know, you might. So anyways, it, these things are not tidy. So the idea yeah. that you should have known to declare yourself as a common law couple when society didn't accept you as such. But also sometimes the findings that are made. So like I have a situation where immigration will say, no, you two were common law. But in fact, they were not common law. And, you know, trying to prove that you were not common law. Um, how do you do that as a client? How do you prove that you were not living together? Um, trying to prove an absence of a fact is really, really hard. And then immigration is saying, well, I won't let you sponsor that person. Um, and then you're stuck trying to make an H&C case, but against a fact that you you can't disprove. And sometimes in circumstances where if you had made a common law application at that time, they you would have been denied. You been denied. Sure. They never would have accepted the application. So they're saying this now right now against one of my clients. They were a, 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 a heterosexual couple living in, um, a, in a country where they couldn't have even walked down the street holding hands together because they weren't married. Um, and yet immigration is making the allegation that they were common law. They couldn't legally have lived together in that country. And so now how are we supposed to make this claim? Like, as Peter says, they would never have succeeded to have made it as a common law couple yeah. application. And yet they're being excluded on 117.9 So we're just kind of stuck in this place. Like, I don't really know what we're supposed to do. Well, I think 117.9D is very interesting on the factual thing. It, it literally allows officers to make really bizarre factual findings. Totally. Right? It basically says this person's not a family member. And we, I see, you know, some of my clients are like, I'm willing to give a DNA test. We'll do anything to prove. And I'm like, it's not the question of whether or not they believe that person is your child or not. That is not the question. Even if we provide them with 10 DNA tests, this is not going to change the finding of 11790. And it's a really hard thing to explain to people, Yeah. right? That, yeah, it's not the fact that they're not your family member. It's the fact that you are falling under this regulation and it deems your family member is not a family member. This kind of factual finding through this very harsh application of this law is very disturbing, I yes. would say. And then also it affects appeal rights too. Yeah. So um, because if you're, if the department has determined that 11790 applies, it means you don't, the sponsor doesn't have a right of appeal to the Immigration and Refugee Board. So, you know, you could do a judicial review application, but it means it's just, it means you could go to the board, but only on the subject of whether or not they were right to find that the person was not a member of the family class. And so then if you convince them of that fact, then it goes into the merits of the application. But if you lose on that point, then so you're left in this really weird place as to am I judicially reviewing the decision or am I going to appeal to the immigration and the refugee board? So it's it's just it creates all these bizarre nuances. 
nuances within the cases that are really puzzling for clients and they just don't um, you know it's really it's hard, hard to advise it's yeah. really hard to it's explain really, really hard how to do I tell so people oh no okay so Peter and Jamie you mentioned that people who this does apply to still spend often years submitting multiple applications to bring their family member to Canada. What types of applications are those and how is it different from simply applying to sponsor a member of the family class? Well, sometimes it's, you know, the decision is a result of trying to sponsor the family member. And then at that point, you know, some people can go to the Immigration Appeal Division, but as you know, <laughs> you discuss, it's very difficult to, as to what grounds you're going to be appealing that on, and sometimes the IAD, and in, in a lot of the cases that we didn't count in our 123 cases that we reviewed, a lot of them were, um, we don't have jurisdiction to deal with this, you know, this is not something that the IAD will face. Can, can you just explain the jurisdiction of the Immigration Appeal Division? Like, what's the bait, like, why would they say they don't have jurisdiction? Um, the main, you know, crux of it is that, you know, this is, it basically precludes you from sponsoring that family member. So therefore it's not technically a sponsorship application and therefore is outside of the jurisdiction because they deal with appeals on sponsorship applications. So if you can't sponsor a family member, it's not a sponsorship application anymore. It's basically kind of like this gatekeeper rule that makes you ineligible, right? So that IAD considers it as, well, this is, you know, something that happens as a preliminary matter, and therefore you can't appeal that preliminary matter. Um, but so this would be the same, so essentially it creates the same situation as if I tried to sponsor, quote unquote, my cousin or my, you know, my best friend's brother, kid or exactly. my brother or somebody who's not a member of the family class. Yeah which I could do as a humanitarian application, but I couldn't do in the family class and therefore can't go to the IAD. That's right. Yeah. So they see that as kind of like, you know, you don't qualify at the get-go, so we're considering. But it's problematic because if you're wanting to challenge whether or not they are actually a member of the family class, the IAD doesn't see that as a legitimate ground or an issue that they themselves need to see. And so then you have to go to judicial review. A lot of the cases that we reviewed were also humanitarian compassionate grounds applications. So people who you know, realized that the sponsorship application was gonna go nowhere and then putting in a humanitarian compassionate grounds applications, then that's a whole other So what's thing. the difference uh, between a humanitarian and compassionate application and a family class application? <laughs> so the family class application is basically, you're saying, I wanna sponsor this person because they are my family. The Humanitarian Compassionate Grounds application under Section 25.1 of the IRPA is you know, meant to be an avenue that's discretionary um, and outside of the family class for any person who wants to gain immigration status in Canada but can't, for whatever reason, meet any of the requirements under the Act to immigrate under any other scheme. So you can't be a refugee, you can't meet the economic class requirements, you can't meet the family class requirements. And so this is an avenue, it's kind of like a fail-safe mechanism in the Act to provide a means by which people can say, I have very good reasons why I should be able to get immigration status, even though I don't meet any of the requirements that you're set out in the Act. And so a lot of people use this as a means to try to gain immigration status for their family members. But as we've seen in our study, um, you know, maybe I should say at the outset that, you know, challenges to 11790 constitutionally have failed because the courts have always said, well, 
there is the agency mechanism. This is an alternative remedy by which people can access that will dampen the harshness of the effect of 11790. The courts have acknowledged 11790 may not be perfect. It doesn't operate the, the way it should, maybe. It excludes people unfairly. But we're, we're, not, we're, we're going to stay away from judging whether or not this piece is constitutional because there is this kind of safety valve mechanism through the agency. Um, and, you know, personally, I find that very disturbing because it really doesn't, um, it doesn't, uh, the courts have not really examined whether that really is a viable alternative remedy. And, you know, part of the reason why we embarked on this research is to show that the agency remedy at the time of the study has not been, you know, a very good safety mechanism for people who have been um, affected by 11790 unfairly, in our opinion. I think it would be such an interesting exercise to look at some of the content of those decisions on um, on humanitarian and compassionate decisions made by those who've been refused on 11790. Because when I've read some of the reasons on refusal um they're they're pretty like i don't know if you've read a lot of these decisions but they can be pretty awful like <laughs> um they're really awful really awful but so, so how, shaming so shaming how is the test different in that humanitarian yeah. application like peter mentioned the supreme court of canada decision in, in canada sammy which Stresses that the best interests of a child are to be considered. Mm-hmm. Has that led to, I guess, automatic approvals of all 117? I hate to see the So, what, what is the test? Like, why? What is the difference between that? The two, t- uh, like, family class is automatic. You're a member of the family class. What is the agency test? So, the agency test is basically there's a, a couple of factors that have to be looked at. And you mentioned one, which is the best interest of the child. I should mention that a lot of, in our study, we found that 50 percent of the agency cases that we saw dealt with uh, children and best interest of the child. So this is not an insignificant number of people that are trying to bring their children over. Um, and then the other aspect is, you know, um, you know, previously, you know, hardship was, you know, part of the test, you know, um, whether or not persons would uh, experience hardship if they had to apply from outside Canada or if they were not able to gain immigration status because of the fact that they didn't meet any other requirements in the act. Um, and then there's other factors such as how established are people in Canada if you're applying from within Canada and that probably relates to the sponsor in these cases. Um, but I think, you know, after, you know, Kanthasami and looking at some of the case law following Kanthasami, Kanthasami was a great decision in the sense that it really upheld this notion of how we should be really examining best interests of the child, um, that it is something that should not be flippantly checked off as a check on the checklist to say, you know, decision makers have examined it, but really to look at um, what it means for children to have to be separated from their families or the impact of them having to apply overseas as opposed to. So can I, can I just ask you, to, can we just back, back up, up a little yeah. bit? Mm-hmm. So let's back up a little bit in yeah, terms sure. of the, because we haven't actually covered agency in much detail. So mm-hmm. humanitarian compassion or agency um, in a lot of detail on the podcast. So I just want to 
back things up. Um, so this is a provision that's been in the act for a long time, um, and it was in the previous act as well. And so do you want to just take us back to Baker and what happened in Baker, like what, where, and how we got to the point that we were at when Campus Omni was being argued. Um, can I just, sure. do you want to maybe just give us a, um, I know you do this for your students, so you, you I, hopefully you'll be able to. I'll try to, like, to take reach us into the to, recesses of my brain to, uh, <laughs> to take us back to what happened in Baker and, and what happened afterwards that led to uh, this coming before the Supreme Court again. Yeah, so Baker is actually a super interesting case, and if anyone's ever interested in reading the backstory of it, um, my colleague, Professor Constance Backhouse, in her biography of Justice Lodery debate is a chapter on it, and she interviews, you know, Baker's lawyer and things like that. Baker was a woman, Josephine Baker was a woman who was in Canada as a caregiver, um, and she um, had children overseas. She had, you know, given birth to children overseas, but also had given birth to children in Canada. Um, and she was applying for status here in Canada. For whatever reason, she had not regularized her status while she was working as a caregiver um, and was asking for, you know, um, a permission to stay within Canada. Um, and mainly because she had children here in Canada who had established lives and were now, some of them were Canadian citizens. Um, and the decision in Baker of her agency application was quite disturbing. I mean, it was, you know, uh, you know, very um, uh, problematic in the sense that it characterized her as someone who had children with multiple fathers and why should we have someone like this in our country and that she should go back to where she came from kind of, you know, decision. It was a very problematic decision. It really did not consider the impact of what her departure from Canada would do to her children. And so Baker was seminal in many ways because it not only solidified the idea that we really should look at the best decisions of the child in a very contextual and nuanced way, but it also set the stage for uh, how we review decisions in administrative law, right? Um, and how we need to review decisions because I think the court also really put to task how the reviewing courts also dealt with that decision. Not only was the decision at the outset disturbing from the agency officer, but reviewing courts also kind of gave a lot of deference to um, the decision makers in, in Baker. You know, fast forward this, you know, so Baker really is, you know, was like the highlight of agency decisions, you know, in, in setting out that there has to be contextual, nuanced uh, attention paid to the circumstances of the persons that are putting the application forward, and especially when children are involved. And when was Baker, more or less, uh, that was very early in the days of the Charter? Is yeah, that? it was 1985, I believe. Yeah, I think it was 1985. I might be wrong on that, but... Okay. But a long time. So it was it's a been, long it's been, time it's been ago. a few decades. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so fast forward to Kanthasami. Kanthasami was a teenager. You know, he um, was someone who was a minor applying for agency status. And he was sent here um, because he was, you know, receiving threats in his home country. And his parents were very concerned about the fact that he could be detained and tortured. And, and, um, and, and so he came here asking for status. He did not get a positive refugee decision and that's why he applied for an agency application because he was not able to get refugee protection um, and the decision was because he was a minor um, 
you know, uh, the decision kind of neglected uh, a nuance and contextual understanding of what it meant to review a decision, um, an application made by a minor person and what that would mean with regards to, um, you know, how, how that would relate to, to children and things like that. Um, and I think the decision in Kantasami really elevated, you know, this the importance of the notion of best interest of the child, but kind of walked away from the language that's developed over the jurisprudence since Baker. You know, a lot has been, a lot of um, jurisprudential weight has been given to these, the language of alive, alert, and sensitive. Um, but the court really kind of walked away a little bit from that and said, you know, listen, yes, we do need to be alive, alert, and sensitive, but we also need to um, look at the particular circumstances of the child and, um, whether and look at the hardships that they would face not only in Canada but not only being removed from Canada but in in all facets of their experience right so I think it was an excellent decision in that regard and, and the persons intervening who provided um, a lot of the argument with this you know a lot of their language was brought into the Kanthasami decision I think you know following Kanthasami there's been some interesting decisions where you know, um, acknowledging that, yes, we need to consider best interests of the child, but this is not necessarily the only factor. This is not, it doesn't trump all other factors when we're doing agency applications. Um, and this is where I think it's a bit, you know, where, where, where we see, you know, some, I would say, where I'm a little bit concerned, you know, that I agree it shouldn't trump, but I think it's really concerning when we're, Talking about 11790, you know, it's hard not to see why this wouldn't be a, a prime consideration with regards to an agency application. Um, and then I've seen since Kathasami some decisions of j- judicial reviews of humanitarian compassion grants applications where, you know, decision makers are saying it's important to consider why the person is coming through the agency avenue, i.e., are they inadmissible on criminal? inadmissibility reasons have they come with dirty hands so to speak and 11790 is sometimes used as a reason to paint a person with dirty hands even though there isn't a nefarious reason why 11790 applies to people i think that's really where our our study still is very relevant in the sense that if we're talking about 90 percent of reported cases dealing with non-fraudulent reasons and yet when they're submitting an agency application they're already going to be um, painted with dirty hands that's setting them back with the decision maker already that you are coming because you can't get status from any other way um, and you have encountered a provision which is casting you in a light that you are a liar that you are um, trying to abuse the immigration system and so this is where I think you know the rhetoric around the alternative remedy through agencies as being a viable mechanism to render 11790 constitutional, very problematic for me. Because the agency venue already acknowledges it, or it's it's a place where people are not coming with, um, or with an ability to say, this is a new opportunity for me to put my explanation forward with clean hands. I find this really important too, because one of the other things that was really poignant about Kanthasami is that what had evolved in that period between Baker and Kanthasami was that like decision making around agency had become really tied to that 
unusual, undeserved and disproportionate hardship, you know, like decision makers took that as like this test for proving a humanitarian and compassionate um, case, even though that language was not in the act. That's right. Do you want to maybe just explain to our listeners where it came from? Yeah, it just kind of, I don't know, actually. I'm not sure that I know that off the top of my head. Maybe I think it just, uh, came, it from just came from the manual. I think it was a manual. My understanding was that it came from the manual. And it evolved and it became so entrenched because the manual, the language in the manual was being treated as like the policy and all decisions were being held up against that standard. And so, as you were saying, that this notion of undeserved became sort of like, um, did you come at this with clean hands, you know? Um, and so... And it's kind of ironic because in some ways, if you look at 11790, you should be considering it as undeserved hardship, yes. right? But they didn't see it as undeserved hardship. What they would see it as is casting you as an abuser or a liar of the system. That's right. right. And so instead of viewing it as, oh my gosh, you are unfairly caught under 11719, you're undeserving of being cast in this way. The very fact of a finding of 11790 was a factual finding to render them as someone who was deserving of the implications of the law playing out under the act That's as right. opposed to the undeserved. And that was the big revelation of Kampasami. It's like, let's get over this and let's see, let, let's go back to what's actually in the act, which is, is this person deserving of compassion? And so taking it back to the purpose of that component of the legislation. And that's what it was supposed to do, reorienting that. And in terms of whether or not that is making its way into decision-making on agency grounds, my observation has been not so far, um, and perhaps it's just going to take some time. Although I will say that when I have had some of those really terrifying decisions um, from the visa offices on 11790 cases, I am still for sure seeing the like, well, you left the kid and the fact that all this stuff happened, you know, should have been foreseeable. And, you know, there's still a lot of finger wagging in those decisions. Yeah. But when I'm putting them to the Department of Justice, I am getting settlement offers. So I was just going to say in review of the cases since Kanthasami, you don't see a lot of reported cases on 11790 anymore. And just anecdotally and through my own practice, I've noticed that if you have a 11790 case, that decision, it's more likely to be settled before it gets yes. to a reported case situation. Yes. It would be interesting to redo this study post Kanthasami. But despite that, I want to say that even though it might be affecting the fact that people don't necessarily need to go all the way to the federal court anymore, the fact that people have to do an agency application is still disturbing to me. And if you look at our study, it means protracted, lengthy separations with family just in order to get the application approved. Never mind the actual kind of um, reunion of of the family. And I would add that like these mothers still have to read those decisions and that's not nothing. And I would also have to say that the the one case that I'm speaking to in particular, this really like it hurt my feelings to read these decisions. I would say they were so awful, but she had also hesitated making the application for many years because she knew how much shame this was going to bring upon her and that she was potentially 
sorry, I should back up. When she's bringing this application to sponsor her undisclosed child, she knows she might be found inadmissible for misrepresentation and that her whole family might be found inadmissible for misrepresentation because all of them are implicated by the fact that she didn't disclose this child. How long did it take for the refusal in that case from Visa, not with the including the settlement and everything, just submitting the application to refusal? So the child's not yet being issued a visa. So I think we submitted... No, I mean uh, just the initial application to the refusal. Um, I'm just trying to remember. I don't think I was part of the initial application, so but I think it's at least two years running now, and we don't yet have a visa. So I wanted and a to normal say, dependent child, yeah. you'd be looking at a few months. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think this brings up the other thing that was really disturbing. We didn't realize when we were embarking the study. We were mainly concerned about documenting the reasons why people, you know, caught under one seventeen ninety and the length of time. But the third thing that was so disturbing about this study was the fact that A, some people knew of the risk of being caught under misrepresentation um, and secondly, that people were <laughs> yeah. being dinged with misrepresentation that there were actual cases that we documented where people were having to explain themselves and having their own status at risk as a result of non-disclosure and so it meant that in our study that there was a, I believe, I think 20 to 30% of some of the cases that we looked at in the um, lawyer survey, some people decided not to pursue an agency application because they feared, because after having received advice from a lawyer, you know, and a good lawyer will say, <laughs> we'll lay it all out for you yeah. and say, the, this, is, this is potentially what could happen, what might happen, what might not happen. Some people decided that they couldn't take the risk. Yes. And so I think, you know, 117.9 shouldn't always be looked at in isolation, but in, in in partnership with Section 40 and how it interacts, because the finding of 117.9 could lead to, you know, implications under Section 40. For sure. And we've had interesting conversations amongst ourselves, I mean, with Jennifer and with Prasanna and other persons working on this issue. We talked about the fact that we're lobbying the government to get rid of 117.9 but let's, you know, take a step back and think about what that would mean practically you know, what will happen if 11790 is eliminated? Does that mean that Section 40 will be used more vigorously? And does that mean that people are now going to be losing their status if they're, you know, or is there going to be some leniency with regards to looking at the, the reasons, the 90% of the cases, like those heartbreaking reasons? Is that going to factor in somehow? So now might be a good time, uh, just we, we have about 10 minutes left, okay. uh, now might actually be a good time to just talk about, so there, there has been an announcement by the government oh. to make substantial changes to 11790. Do you want to maybe just explain what those, so a lot of those lobbying efforts, or at least appear to have been initially successful to a certain extent, um, do you want to maybe explain what that is and, and what your view uh, but just maybe start by explaining what it is the minister announced sure. and what your understanding of that announcement is. So my understanding is that this is a pilot program that the minister announced on Friday for a two-year period starting June 4th, I believe, that um, persons who may be caught under 11790, but only certain persons, so persons who are resettled refugees, who have obtained refugee protection, um, who have been sponsored as a spouse or a child, and want to bring their family members over but are caught under 11790 could ask for an exemption. 
Um, it is interesting that the minister has limited the exemption to these categories of persons. In my own practice, a lot of my 11790 cases deal with caregivers, with people who are coming through the economic stream. And as you already know, those people cannot bring their family members from the get-go, which is very problematic in my opinion. But aside from that, you know, they have spent, you know, their life and their sweat here in Canada working and then for 11790 to hit them at some point when they want to bring their family members over after they get permanent residence status is extremely heartbreaking. They've invested in our in their time here and to have 11790 hit and to be told that you are not going to be eligible for this exemption, I think is going to be heartbreaking for many people to communicate. Um, so I think, I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I think it is a, a, a good positive step forward that the minister and the government recognizes that 11790 is a problem, that it applies too broadly, that it is harsh, uh, that it acts counter to the goal or objective under Section 3 of the ERPA to bring families together. But I think it is... Um, unfortunate that it is limited. And I think, you know, our study shows that 20% of the cases that deal with 11790 deal with refugees or protected persons. So it means that the majority of cases that confront 11790 don't have refugee-like facts associated with them. So I think it is, you know, in my hope that the minister and the government will review this or will somehow provide opportunities for persons that don't fit into those categories to apply for an exemption or even to see that maybe it's time to get rid of 11790. Just talking about the refugees, and we talked about this earlier about the rationale for 11790 in the first place, which is connected to inadmissibility for accompanying or non-accompanying family members under Section 42 of the Act. Now, Section 42, in my understanding, doesn't apply to protected persons. And so, um, what is there any rationale for for having, or was there any rationale for having refugees forced to have their family members examined if they weren't included on permanent residence application in the first place? Um, and do you want to maybe just comment on your understanding of what that? Yeah, I actually don't know what the government was thinking with regards to that. I think you know you're right that. If they're exempted under Section 42 already, it doesn't really um, translate in certain cases, right? So, I, and I mean, family class members are partially exempted too because they right. can't be found medically in the That's right. Small exemption, and it's been it's been my view that that That's I mean, and I think this is something that maybe should be considered is whether or not this section was these sections of the regulations were ultra-virus in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had considered in, in a case a couple of years ago whether we shouldn't be challenging yeah. the um, requirement to have family members examined yeah. because there's no rational basis yeah. for it. And it's a, it's something that's created purely in the regulations. It's not... It doesn't come from the act. That's right. And the regulations can only be created in assistance to the act. So in other words, the, the power to create regulations isn't an open-ended ability to just create regulations for whatever the minister feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never understood the rationale justifying that part of the regulations. Yeah. And justifying not, not just on a policy level, but justifying the 
legal validity of the jurisdiction to even make that regulation in the first place. Hmm. Yeah. It'll be interesting. I don't know if this is going to be done. I, I'm sure this won't be done by regulation, but it's a shame because it would be interesting to read a regulatory impact analysis statement because I'm sure the costing of this by making it be refugees and family class members, the fact that neither of them, it wouldn't have made a difference with respect to medical inadmissibility in any event because they wouldn't have been precluded on that basis no matter what. Okay. Whereas economic the, and caregivers would both have been. Well, we don't know the details of this exemption process too. So it'll be interesting to see how, what kind of rigors, you know, that people will have to be running through to obtain this exemption, right? So is it going to be like an agency type application or is it, is it just simply that I think it would be a family class, wouldn't it? Yeah, maybe. But I'm just wondering what kinds of things would you have to go through? What's the time that's going to be? Probably full admissibility screening. Yes, exactly. So, But I think, you know, I find it very disturbing that the categories are so limited, given the amount of people that this regulation affects that have non-refugee-like facts. In thinking about, like, so at the conference in Winnipeg, IRCC uh, speakers were saying that it's an express, I think they want to make modifications to express entry before expanding it too much. Because uh, on a panel at express entry, IRCC was saying there's been a flurry of 117.90 issues arising with people not declaring that they're married because it will negatively impact their comprehensive ranking scores yeah. if their spouses you know, are less educated. Yeah, but that doesn't make sense work. because all you have to do is say that they're not a company. No, but they don't know that. So instead, there's people just not declaring them <laughs> entirely oh and then God. trying to sponsor them later okay. to the point that they were even talking about possibly rejigging how CRS is calculated to reward people for spouses instead of penalizing in certain cases. Yeah. yeah, I think, well, that just speaks to, uh, well, I think one of the things about 11790 is that there's a default position that there's a mistrust of people applying to Canada, right? And I think, you know, if there's a little bit more flexibility in the way that we process people, all of these problems can be solved. I mean, someone didn't list their member, they didn't get them examined, examine them now, you know, like there's no discretion or room for immigration officials sometimes for them to just you know, fly by the seat of their pants, so to speak, and just try to get the information needed to make a decision, right? Um, and I, I think the rigidity of it is just, you know, there is an objective to it, but it doesn't meet the objective. And I think if we're really concerned about abuse of the system or fraud, there's different ways of dealing with that. And like you said, like there's different ways of communicating these things. And in some ways, 11790 is operating to encourage people to um, not provide all the information needed because of this fear of, you know, and I think there's a lot to be said about how a system works, how it's communicated to people, and maybe also how lawyers are also advising their clients too, right? So, yeah, it's an interesting issue, and I'm really interested to see how it plays out with this exemption. But, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic and hopeful that it will you know, my view is it would be great to see this regulation repealed out of the books completely. Yeah. There's one other thing that I would like to be able to add, which is that I feel that more and more, I feel like people should be able to choose which family members they would like in or out. Like, because I'm struck, and maybe it's because I'm dealing a lot of the time with families from women from the Philippines or places where they just can't 
get a divorce, you know? And so it's the idea of, um, or, you know, when you have a family member who has a criminal conviction conviction or a medical inadmissibility and um, your only option, um, because right now, in a way, 11790 has, even though I'm very opposed to it for all the same reasons we've been discussing, it's also in some ways... Um, helpful when you've got somebody who wants not to include somebody but is it you know to to if somebody has a spouse who's on their deathbed um your choices at this moment are to sign that form or to divorce your deathbed spouse and both of those are equally unpalatable but um you know, um, that's interesting um, perspective that I hadn't thought of. And I've had to do this dozens of times, spend, sending clients to do like deathbed separation agreements. And uh, But I also think that it's interesting. I mean, this is for another podcast, but yeah. how the Immigration Act really considers who's family or not. Like we can have a whole conversation just on 117, you know, yeah. and there's some amazing research out there about like, who do we consider as family? What has immigration view? Yeah. I'd like to do a podcast on 11711, like the one that's like dead on the books, but I just look at my own family's history of migration. And I like, my father was the first one to immigrate. He sponsored his brothers and sisters, but to think about how all of those people would not be able to be sponsored today just blows my mind. And I think about what kinds of work they do now, where they are, where my cousins are. And I'm like, it just, doesn't seem I, I I'm just so I haven't done a lot of research on this but it would be so interesting to see why you know immigration got rid of that it was such a great program and you know yeah. just having you know, that lived experience of watching that happen it's really disturbing to see who we consider as family who we value in terms of immigration policy and things like that yeah Great. Well, it sounds like we've uh, we won't have any shortage of topics. <laughs> so yeah. once we either figure out this whole telecommunications thing, or yeah. uh, you right. come back and visit us in in Vancouver again, uh, we'll, right. we'll definitely have some other topics to uh, to talk about. Um, so uh, for those of you who weren't already feeling inadequate about your life choices and and the things that you've your life goals, uh, Jamie also has uh, a, a recent uh, has recently had a, a novel given uh, an award uh, with. Uh, uh, which she's writing on the side when she's not doing oh uh, all of the things that the rest of us can't <laughs> seem to achieve in our, in our day lives. Wow. Uh, so uh, what is the, the, t- the title of your novel? Um, it's called Dandelion Roots. Um, I have a literary agent, but I don't have a book deal yet, so I'm still revising it as per my agent's instructions. So, What's it about? Um, it's, if you're, you know what? It's so symbiotic with the work that I do, so it is like a joy because it's about... Um, uh, a family living in a small BC mining town, an Asian family that came from a stateless country and exploring their immigration status, citizenship, and belonging, issues of belonging of in Canada. So, wow. Well, it's like the only kinds of books I read. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to painfully revise it right now. So this is my summer project. Great. All right. Well, we look forward to completing Look forward to seeing the completion of that project and getting a chance to read it. Well, thank you so much thank for joining so much. us. It's been, it's been great. Mm-hmm. It's right. an honor to be here. Mm-hmm.